0: Hi, I'm Yannick Guzdala and this is the Yannick Guzdala Podcast. So I have to give a huge shout out to Corey and Kevin over at NoTreble.com for facilitating the interview I'm about to present in this episode. Um, we were sitting in a bar, uh, about, I think about four years ago um, in Reading, Pennsylvania. I was over there at Gerald Weasley's base boot camp as a guest teacher. And we we, we went out um, We went out one evening after, after the day was done. And I was sitting there talking, going on and on and on about my next guest, about Seth Godin and how much of a hero he was of mine and still is, of course, and uh, how, how many books of his I'd read and how much he was influencing me and helping me and how much my life had changed changed in marketing and online and you know and, and, and reaching people and, and in trying to change people's lives and this this huge smile was slowly creeping across Corey's face and Kevin's too uh because little did I know but Corey had co-founded a company with Seth um and uh they knew each other very well and been friends for many years and after I was done Corey told me this and I felt a little embarrassed I had no idea that they were they were that connected and um he said man if you If you you ever want to meet, I know I expressed some interest in meeting Seth. He said, "Well, if you ever want a meeting, uh, let me know, and I might be able to facilitate that. We might be able to hook it up." So, fast forward four years to last week, I dropped Corey an email, and within I think 48 hours, we'd we'd set up an interview. I uh, went to New York and uh, and met Seth, and and he had asked us to meet uh, downtown at a a chocolatier, and we'd never met before. He knows nothing about me, and and apparently. He sensed that I was a bit of a chocoholic. Uh, unfortunately, that was closed, so we took a stroll around the block, um, found a cafe, and and proceeded to do the interview. It's a little bit loud. Um, I've tried to isolate the voices as much as possible, and uh, you'll be able to hear every word. That's not a problem, but it's not my normal kind of studio setup. But we, we really got to some amazing things. I'm really just thrilled to to have sat down with him and got to meet him and been further inspired by him and I'm so happy to be able to present this interview to you so you can check out you know just everything he has to say and I highly recommend going out there and checking out you know his latest project which is Alt-MBA and of course all of his books I mean they're just incredible I think he's up to 19 or 20 books now I highly recommend Purple Cow and Tribes. Tribes was a real game changer for me. Um, i often gift that one to friends and and lend them my copies i have a couple of hard copies and just really you know encourage people to read that material it's it's some life-changing stuff so this is my interview in new york with the great seth godin i think the biggest thing and the biggest question i get asked and the biggest um the biggest issue I face when talking to people and trying to convince them that being an independent artist is a really great thing and that this might possibly be the greatest time in history to do that is that they see people like Taylor Swift, you know, removing all their music from from uh, Spotify and, and making these huge bold statements about royalties and about this, that, and the other, and. I know you're very passionate about that and you, you know, have a lot of experience with that. It, even if it's a reiteration of a million things you've said before, I think the weight of people that are listening to this and hearing it coming from you sure. is pretty huge. Um, and just the fear of consequence element that goes with that and the, the, the people, okay. you know, moving over the, over, the taking the first step and getting into that with all the information that's there in front of them, All the things like, no, this is bad, it's terrible to be an independent artist, the music industry's in the toilet, like all of these things you talk to that a little bit? Sure. In terms of, specifically in terms of the independent musician, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm ready.
0: Um, The first first thing that people think is like, I can't do this because there's so much information against it.
1: I think they say, I can't do this because they're afraid. Right. Let's understand, fear trumps everything, followed by culture. Fear and culture are what drive all the choices that we make. And You are correct. There's never, ever been a time in history to be better, to be a professional artist than today. Now, we have to make one really important distinction. There is almost nothing overlapping a famous artist and a professional artist. They're completely different categories. As different as a surgeon is from a gardener. That if you are famous, you are trafficking in being famous. And people who buy things from you are buying them from you because you're famous. And we can have a whole conversation about how to become famous, right? In Taylor's case, the fact that her father was wealthy and supported the whole thing getting started certainly helps. Taylor is not more talented than you, but Taylor is definitely more famous than you. So if you're going to be in the famous business, be in the famous business. But if you want to be in the music business, what does that mean? What it means is you have a giant problem. And the problem is awareness. No one knows your idea that if you show me an artist where enough people know about this artist and like this artist's work, I will show you an artist who is making a living. And so your problem is not piracy, your problem is obscurity.
0: And I hate the word piracy. I'm glad you bring that word up because, you know, I've done... Since In Rainbows came out, I was like a massive fan of like letting the, the, the sure. audience pay what they think the music is worth. What, what do you think about there being so much more... Um, responsibility on the artist's shoulders to make good art in order to stand out now rather than just being a part of the machine that went round and round right. and round and maybe you got lucky or maybe you were one of the 300 artists on Capitol Records that just got shelved.
1: Exactly. You know. So so this goes back to John Hammond, the greatest A&R man of all time. Um, if John Hammond found you and promoted you, picked you, you were better than even money to become famous. This is how you become a famous artist. Right. So we have a short head but no long tail. There's no way to hear somebody like J- James Taylor has a brother Livingston. Almost right. no one heard Livingston Taylor because no one picked Livingston Taylor. <laughs> now, Livingston Taylor isn't more or less talented than James Taylor, probably. But what we saw was that the gate door closed on him. He couldn't get his share of attention. Right. Now the long tail is present. And what that means is radio isn't in charge. John Hammond has left the building. You have the chance to build an audience. And the way you do that is by finding 10 people who trust you enough to listen. If your stuff is good for them, they will tell other people and it will spread. And the more it spreads, the more, better you do, right? If it's not good enough for them to spread, either find 10 completely different people who have a different need or get better, right? right? But we can't have it both ways. You can't say, I'm glad I don't have to wait to be picked because the chances of that are zero, but. I don't want to have to put up with the fact that I'm living in an abundant economy, not a scarce economy. How do I create value by walling off this thing from other people? Right. You can't have both.
0: I I find myself having this conversation far too often in terms of the pay-to-play model. I remember very vividly 2012 Olympics in London talking to musician friends back in London who were up in arms about the fact that they were gonna be given an opportunity to play in front of tens of thousands of people, but they weren't going to get paid for it. And there seemed and I was like, wow, tens of thousands of people, let me get out there. And they were like, there's no way, this is my minimum. I don't get out of bed for less than this amount of money. Can you talk to that mentality?
1: Well, you can go in both directions. So I'm a professional speaker Mm -hmm. and almost anyone can give a speech. So it turns out there's a bimodal distribution. There's a hump of people at zero, and there's a hump of people at expensive. It doesn't pay to be in between, because if you go in between, then the person should just go down to zero, because they can replace you for zero. I'm part of the scarce group that says if you want someone you've heard of, it's expensive. If you're a musician and no one's heard of you, you don't have standing to be expensive anymore, because someone else will do the gig for free. So the way you get famous is by being in front of people, in a way, that makes those people want to hear more from you.
0: Okay. So I have several friends who are currently going through your 800 or 900 rejection letter process right now. In fact, I'm sure there aren't even that many companies to be rejected from since you went through that. Sure. Um, but there seems to be an immense fear of going ahead and doing it on their own. Like it, it's Yeah, because really who's really responsible? Ungrateful. Right.
1: They will tell you, that they are afraid for economic reasons or logistical reasons, but that's not what it is. It's the sentence that we are the most afraid of hearing is you're not as good as you think you are. Okay. And so you're like, here you are doing a podcast. What right do you have? Where's your permit? Where's your license? You're not good enough to do a podcast. And so most people don't.
0: Trust me, I thought that on the plane coming over this evening several times.
1: (laughs) And, And the thing is, you're probably not, but it's not up to you. It's up to the market to decide that what we have, particularly with electronic books, is a zero marginal cost, no barrier to entry marketplace. If you're willing to do the hard work of earning attention, showing up, keeping your promises, you're 90% further along than anybody else. What's not going to happen is you're not going to write something. It's going to go in the world and become the next 50 Uh, whatever that book was, Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Right? That that boat has sailed. But what might happen is you might earn trust, you might earn attention, you might gain some fame. You can then turn that into more trust and more attention and actually build a business.
0: You think our most important metric is trust and honesty in terms of that? Well,
1: there are lots of ways to look at this new economy. My choice is to look for trust. If you can be the most trusted person in your field, then almost everything else takes care of itself
0: do you see an importance of being the source that's something that i hear a lot when i when i listen to speakers when i read books when i read books about the business and the industry being the source and people always wanting to go back to the source like tony robbins being such a pioneer of what he does but then there are a billion people that teach the same thing he does well, to make a fortune for it because
1: T- tony who i've known for a long time yeah. if you listen to his original stuff 60 percent of it's from zig Ziglar. So it's all coming from somebody, right? And it's not that people care about original authorship. It's that they care about the experience. So if someone goes to a jazz club in New York and the trumpet player plays a riff from Kind of Blue, but the person in the audience is experiencing it there for the first time live, it's that person. It's not Miles, right? right? And so we quote each other all the time. This is not... If you're going to give a speech based on other people's ideas, that's fine. If you weave them together in a way that only you could do it, that's what makes you the source.
0: Right. And that's, I mean, that's an amazing parallel in terms of learning vocabulary in music. All, all we do as musicians is transcribe and assimilate that vocabulary and, and try and make it original. And the parallels between language and improvised music, for instance, are just they are, they're exact. Right. You know, there are no differences. Um, so you are a big fan of, of, uh, of stealing?
1: Yes, I think that all artists steal. For me, my choice is whenever I can to give a name check to the person I'm stealing from because it makes me feel like I know the difference between what I just said and what I'm quoting, right? And quoting serves a really useful purpose. Now in a jazz setting, you can't say, I'm now about to quote Patricia Barber. <laughs> But everyone knows you did, so it's fine. What's magic here is when I think about Patricia Barber or Christian McBride or Bill Frisell, I could play you some of their music and you'd instantly know who it is. Even if they're playing a Miles track. Absolutely. That's what we're talking about. It's got to sound like you.
0: So it has to have a voice. It has to have an idea.
1: I'll I'll tell you a, a story that ended up being okay in the end, but it was really scary. Okay. So I almost never watch other speakers because I fly in and I fly out. But I was uh, caught backstage, and this guy was on before me, and he was using five of my slides. They were slides I had found, built, customized. They're mine. And I was going on after him. So everyone in the audience was going to think I was using his slides.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
1: and fortunately, I had time to quickly take him out of my presentation. Oh, you but did? That's, yeah, that's one of the only times I've ever seen that. Airplane.
0: Wow. And you you didn't choose to make a thing out of it. And no, no, no. I mean, but in a good way, in a positive yeah. way. No, it was yeah, just it was, take him out. You
1: know, what's my job on stage? My job on stage is not to reference that guy. It's to take you to a place you've never been before. And if I took you out of that mindset to talk about this guy using my slides, yeah.
0: now I think you're you you are hip to, or maybe even close friends with Benjamin Zander.
1: Oh yes, who's he's a, a dear friend. Like,
0: and that's just a huge hero of mine. And the the Shining Eyes video, the TED Talk and and his analogy of the classical music industry with the shoes in right. Africa, you know, exactly. the guys from Manchester. Um, can you speak a little bit to that in, in terms of, I mean, you've been referencing jazz, for instance, that's something I'm, you know, that's what I do. I'm a jazz musician predominantly. Two things, actually. Just speak to that in terms of the industry and the market share and how people perceive it and why they perceive it to be such a negative thing. And Jazz and or classical? Jazz. Okay. And also... Do you have a new word for jazz? Because I just think that was, that's something from 60 or 70 years ago. You know,
1: it's funny, I think that jazz is one of the best words in the world. And what an opportunity. Like, no one has shoes, said more, yeah. right? That it's hard to mention a single word that is both classic and modern, that is trusted, that has not been exploited, that doesn't make people roll their eyes, it is a very magical word. The problem is that a lot of people in the industry are trying to make a living instead of making a difference. And that's why, to the insiders in the jazz world, it's feeling sort of nyet because yeah. we're getting bored, right? Yeah. But the outsiders are ready for what it feels like to see improvisation, to be in the room where it happens, to have. Trading Fours occurred right before their eyes, right? What's missing is the Village Vanguard and the Blue Note and the few record labels that are left, and the musicians are afraid to make jazz what jazz could be. And that's really sad to see. What it could be
0: again, or what it could be as a development of what it was? When it
1: started, it wasn't what we think of as jazz. Right. Right? I'm sorry, I'm making noise right and left here. What, when it started, the reason that jazz clubs have talking when you hear the live albums is because jazz was an afterthought for a bar. Right. And for a really long time, you didn't go to hear a musician, you went to drink and there was a musician. <laughs> and it was only when Bop showed up and Charlie and the rest of the guys yeah. that we said, oh, there's a famous jazz musician. Right. Like these guys, he made, Miles made Kind of Blue in 72 hours. Oh, yeah. Right? (laughs) So that was the model.
0: And it's still the biggest selling jazz album of all time. Exactly.
1: So what we had was accidentally famous people, because they were plugging into this idea that radio was really taking off, combined with venues that didn't support them economically. And so we're left with the venue. But when you go to the venue, you can tell they're not making a living. And you do the math they can't be playing that guy on stage more than 200 bucks. So if you're showing up as a musician to make a difference, that's fine with you because the people are there to hear you. But the real breakthrough is when you take jazz thinking and you move it outside the jazz club. So uh, an artist like Keller Williams, I think of as a jazz musician, right? So Keller's playing five different instruments at the same time, looping them, (laughs) uh, riffing, playing 15-minute songs based on one single lick from Michael Jackson, but he does it like a jazz musician. So Keller can go to any one of a hundred cities and get 3,000 people anytime he wants. That's how you make a living as a jazz musician, but first got to become Keller. Yeah. Then you can go build a tribe, then you can go feed the tribe.
0: I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly what I'm doing.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Fabulous. Do you do a lot of stuff in uh, presenting online when you're not actually there in person?
1: No, I stopped a long time ago.
0: Okay, because?
1: So, one um, of my challenges, I came up in the book business, yeah. and I, for seven years, read every single business book published in America. It wasn't that hard, Okay. because you'd go to the business book section, and there'd only be two new books that week, because the section can't go to infinity, okay, right. two new books a week is 100 books a year. It yeah. wasn't that hard to keep up, yeah. <laughs> like I didn't read the technical stuff, I just read my category. Right. But then they opened the doors, and now... Since you and I started talking, they published 20 business books, 30 business books. So there's no scarcity anymore. Well, what that means is you don't say, what book can I get published this year? Because you can publish a book every day. And then there's Udemy and there's Skillshare and there's the rest of them. So I can make a video course every day. And then I've got the Alt MBA, which is the advanced workshop I run. So I have no scarcity problem. I have an abundance problem. Where do I put my work? So what I decided was, I will do paid uh, video courses on Udemy, and they're the most successful ones they've ever had. Um, I will do free stuff online all the time, but the expectation on both sides is, hey, it's free. I'm here on a podcast, right? right. And then if I'm given a speech, it's really expensive because I had to get on a plane, and I am in the room right. with the people. So folks come to me and say, well, how about if you get on Skype and blah, 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 and all of a sudden, the audience doesn't get anything out of it, I don't get anything out of it, the organizer doesn't get anything out of it, and there's no scarcity.
0: So, so I'll let someone else do that. So you've structured the business model in a, in a really... In a
1: way that matches my desire to make a difference. Because what I discovered is I love not getting on a plane. I hate spending an hour and not making a difference.
0: Yeah. How much do you travel through the year, would you say? It's,
1: I limit it to 30 gigs a year. 30 gigs a year. Okay, wow.
0: And there's me trying to limit it to 100.
1: That's well, it's different shots. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Tom Peters still does 90. And I talked to him about it 15 years ago, and I said, I did 90 this year, and it's going to kill me. And he said, I have no choice, because it's how he's wired. But I said, guess what? I have a choice. So I decided to get my life back instead.
0: Speak to I, I mean, I, I jotted this down, I was listening to a bunch of different things and then injecting personal conversations I would had with musicians, moaning and griping conversations for the most part. Um, and I, I wrote here, people who try to carry on doing what they do despite the fact their job position or description no longer exists on a financially sustainable level and they complain about their previous workload not being there rather than innovating or moving with the times. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I I hear that a lot. People are stuck 10 years, 20 years, 50 years ago, and they think that's what it should be like now. Like record labels think there's a loss of revenue because of Napster. Right. In fact, before we even get to that question, are you of the opinion that had those major labels invested in the new online digital platform that they would actually be in existence still and relevant and be fueling that
1: rather okay. than yeah, suing so, it. So you're asking the question correctly, which is not, would they have come out ahead? Right. Because that's not on offer. No. And it's really important to understand there's no guarantee about any of this. Would, if they had become digital curators, yes. would they have come out better than now? Of course. Let me ask you a question. What does Random House do for a living? Random House and Encyclopedia Britannica, their job is to, find information and then make it accessible to people who are looking for it. You know what that's called? Google. (laughs) Do you know how many people it took to start Google? Two. Two, (laughs) So why didn't random house start Google? Because that's what they should have done. But they said our customer is the bookstore and our product is paper. The record people said our customer is the radio station and our product is polycarbonate. That was their mistake. If they had said our customer is the listener, and our product is curation, yeah. then they come out way ahead. And so, when I think about, some, if I wanted to start a jazz label, the first thing I would do is start a jazz club. Yeah. And I would use the jazz club to attract musicians, which platform. I would then yeah. digitize and put in the world. I would become the most famous jazz club in the world. There'd be a line out the door, which would let me get subscribers, which would let me put more jazz music to more people who want to hear it. Yeah. Cycle, cycle, cycle. If you're the kingmaker, that means you get to make kings. That's a good business.
0: I, I can't believe I suggested that to several clubs in New York in 2006, 10 years ago. Yeah. And they were like, there's no way.
1: Right, because um, they're in the real estate business.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they talked to me about how much it costs to rent the, the space on what, whatever street in the village, you know. Um, so so yeah. So we got off the initial thing that I wanted to talk about, which was people who were complaining about the fact that it's not 20 right. years ago, it's not the 80s, right. they aren't going in the studio to make records with Shaka Khan and then playing tours for six so months. So can, you know?
1: we, can we agree that, particularly in classical music, but also in jazz slash pop, mm-hmm. the phrase play it as written is at the heart of ten years of your practice. The first ten years, what you were told to do is play it as written.
0: If you have a teacher and you go through some sort of educational structure,
1: or if you even if you want to be a sideman, uh-huh. you don't get to sit there with the guys in Steely Dan and just make new stuff up. No. What well, they say, There's a definite no, job you've got charts. Yeah. You're supposed to play it as written. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you get ahead. Sure. Now, you know, leaving aside uh, uh, Bob Dylan and uh, Al Cooper yeah. with the <laughs> piano, with the organ riff, but yeah. leaving that one aside. Yeah. In general, what you because I've done a lot of work with Carnegie Hall. And the people in Carnegie Hall are told for 15 years, five hours a day, play it as written. Yeah. Well, let's say you get good at playing it as written. You would think that you should be rewarded. Right. And how will you get rewarded by being paid for playing it as written?
0: So this is the school to factory model.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And now the factory's gone. Because right. no one's yeah. willing to pay you to play music as written. Because if that's all I need, I can program it in MIDI and it'll play itself. Right? And so instead, we have a different game that you are welcome to play, but you're not welcome to whine about. Right. And that game is, I'm gonna hire somebody who when they walk in the recording studio makes me feel better. I'm gonna hire somebody who when we're on stage together makes me play better. Yeah. I'm gonna hire somebody who if we go on tour, more audience people come. That's how you're gonna get hired. Right. And if you can't do those three things, you should stop looking to get paid to make music.
0: And it should be more of a hobby than a, than a
1: And there's nothing wrong, I love hobbies. And re- let's remember, that until 1895, music was a hobby for everyone. Yeah, No one yeah. made a living making yeah. music. You, everyone had a piano in their house, no one had a record player. So if you wanted music, you made your own music. That's what you did for fun, not for a living.
0: I want to jump ahead to what is social media now. And I know you, uh I've heard a bunch of things where you were not on Twitter because if I chose to do that I would have to give up something else because I would want to be that's good right. at being on Twitter although your blog is piped out every day that's on right. Twitter just a link I thought that was awesome uh, I'm going to steal that by the way because I think do. that's great and I can't stand Twitter but I do like it for yeah, that. Yeah, they got a
1: buffer, they set it up for you. Buffer? Okay,
0: yeah. fantastic. Um, i either read or heard in an interview where you... Haven't listened to, uh, read comments or paid attention to comments or reviews for a long time. Do you disable those on all your platforms? Yes. Okay.
1: I can't turn them off on Udemy, so I have to force myself not to go. Okay. I read the first 15 comments to make sure my course isn't stupid. Because if everyone says, you did something, I need to know that. Okay, so you are paying attention to
0: some of the feedback, just because something like Facebook, that is a massive conversation happening there on so many levels well, when so you're posting comments.
1: Well, I out. get dozens of comments on Facebook and I never, ever read that, right? Because it won't make my work better, right? That I don't need an anonymous 12-year-old to tell me she didn't understand what I wrote because right. I didn't write it for her. Fine, I, now sophisticated enough with my own work that I can tell when it's pretty good, if it's great, that's a bonus, and if it's horrible, I didn't publish it, right? So I've got this range there, and then I get emails from people like my friend Corey, who will tell me the truth about something I wrote. I'll read that, because that's not an online review, that's a colleague speaking to me, right? I'm totally open to that, some people don't even want that, which is fine, but let's remember if you use Facebook, you are not their customer; you are their product, and they have optimized Facebook to make you just unhappy enough that you will use it more. That's what they're doing on purpose. Yeah. And so, if you want to be the bird who's pressing the thing to get the food pellet, mm-hmm. by all means. But don't call yourself a professional when you do that. Right. Like so, Gary V does that. And he's built a business, but Gary, he has given up a huge portion of his life to do that. Okay. The number of people who've actually professionally succeeded because they've read all the comments is two. It's just not a thing.
0: <laughs> and in terms of growing an audience and being an independent artist, do you think that from right from the outset that you should ignore all of that, or do you think that conversation and feedback is an essential part of growing your whatever it is you do?
1: Okay, so. I think the way you build a practice is by being generous and then being generous again and continuing to be generous. That if you are generous enough, people will ask you for more and in that moment you can ask for money. Yeah. Right? Couldn't agree more. So the way you become generous is someone posts a song, you make a remix of it and post it right back to them. Yeah. Right? Backing and forthing that the way you're generous is by leaving positive insightful comments for other people yeah. not for reading comments that people are leaving for you that's not generous right that's just asking for, for applause yeah. and so when you're showing up and showing up you know I mentioned Chris, Christian McBride earlier yeah Christian has this fabulous network of people where they all come from because he supports them because he gets them gigs because he knows someone who knows someone who knows someone that makes him a linchpin in the community right that's available to anyone who cares these are great questions it's clear you thought hard about this
0: well that's an incredibly kind thing for seth to say and i I really do appreciate um that that he that he would notice that and it, it it just brings up um something i feel i should reiterate and that he's right i i I have thought long and hard about this stuff and I continue to do it, it's not something I've just done and now right at this point it's something that's a continual process and something I highly recommend you getting in the habit of just being aware and just being open minded and, and having some sort of th- thought process, having some sort of learning process and and being able to assimilate knowledge and uh, assess ideas and, and, and create ideas and insight discussion so that ideas happen around you and with with those people that you are in contact with i think that's really important so i just wanted to jump in there and make that point and uh... we'll go right back to the interview now do you feel the, uh, the music education industry is perpetuating a business model that no longer exists is it encouraging especially in jazz or improvised music or popular or commercial music do you think it's you know? just teaching people how to be teachers to perpetuate the system
1: okay so there's the foundation of the pyramid which is the concerned parent getting their seven-year-old trumpet lessons Yes. there's plenty of evidence that practicing a craft makes you a better person I'm all for that but at some point when the kid gets good they'll get tracked and that track decision rarely comes from a thoughtful parent who says, this will make my kid better at craft. They say at some level, wow, they're gifted, they will be able to do this for a living. And the person they're handing money to is complicit in this cycle because they're not teaching this person how to think like a composer, how to perform like an artist. They're, thinking them to, they're teaching them to play it as written. So by the time someone ends up at Juilliard, they're wrecked. Yes. And I have a lot of problems with what happens at the 17 to 25-year-old level at the at higher
0: education level, Because
1: yeah. they are not mm-hmm. telling them the truth. Like, I've spoken there a couple of times and people leave in tears. Because I, I say, let's do the math. How many first cello players are there in the orchestras of the United States? How long does a career last? How many new cello players do we need every year? Four? How many cello players are in this very room? (laughs) 50. Right? Let's do the math. You're never gonna do that. Like, someone will, but it won't be you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna become a cello teacher. Fine, if you love it. And, let's be clear, you're not gonna have a house in the Hamptons as a cello teacher. And that's fine no you don't need that but also you've got to be willing to look your students in the eye and explain to them you're training them to be a cello teacher which is fine we need great teachers yeah. but mm-hmm. guess what no one ever taught you how to teach cello they just tell you how to play tell- cello right. so if you're going to be a cello teacher it's a good day to start learning to teach the cello I, I feel that's... really strongly because these kids work harder than just about anyone except a, a snooker chump of a football player but they're not getting any shot at uh, a response and if they could learn to sing and dance in their soul then it would be fine if they never taught the cello because they would still have the cello as the source of the joy in their life and then they could use the skills they have of craft to go be a trader or something else when you look
0: at that room full of musicians when you give a talk like that do you see fear
1: Yeah, that's why they're crying. I mean, what happens is out of 30 people in the room, I then switch to the good news, which is being an impresario like you are is easier than ever. Take your stuff, stand outside, and busk. And then busk some more. And then build a mailing list. And then once you have 1,000 people, kickstart a record. And then once you have 10,000 people, that's what an impresario does. How many of you are ready to be an impresario? And two people raise their hand, and they will. That is a valid career path, right? The rest of the people are really feeling ripped off because they're afraid to be an impresario, no. they're entitled, they believe, to get picked, but the picking people aren't coming on campus. Do
0: you think one of the biggest issues is the fact that there's no curriculum for an, to be an impresario and parents won't justify paying for their kids to go to school where there is no curriculum?
1: Yeah, I would say part of it is that we live in a culture where free-range kids are seen as strange. That if there isn't a curriculum, you're not supposed to do it. I, mean, I was homeschooled my entire yeah.
0: life. I was viewed as strange. I mean, my I kids hands.
1: both grew up as free-range kids, yeah. and I'm super proud of them. Yeah. But they, you know, they get to college, and it's like, what do you mean you're gonna show me the seven steps of this? And it's like, <laughs> just let me do it, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, would we have more impresarios if it was a course or a series of courses? Yes, but it doesn't need to be, because mm-hmm. at its heart, It's about making stuff up as you go along.
0: My thing is when a lot of people ask me, I went to Berklee College of Music, very briefly, like any musician who went on to do anything, went for two or three semesters, quit and got a gig. So, uh, but a lot of young musicians come to me, oh, you went to Berklee, should I go? It's a lot of money, it's gonna kill my family, should I go? And my thing is always yes, because it's an unbelievable network of musicians and I'm still working with those guys 20 years later and I will be until I die but pay as little attention to the curriculum as you possibly can and make sure you're doing your own thing the entire time.
1: Well, and this is key, doing your own thing. So if I had a kid going to Berkeley, I'd say, if you don't have a band that you formed within two weeks, you're out Get of it. Out, yeah. That someone has yeah. to walk up to all the other kids and say, you want to be in my band? If you're not that person, you're in the wrong industry.
0: That's an awesome place to end, I think. Thank you so oh, much. A pleasure. man. This amazing. was fun. Yeah. when you idolize people who are as forward thinking and as open-minded as someone like Seth Godin, I can, uh, I can guarantee that it's, it's never, never dull and never boring meeting your heroes like it was to meet Seth and sit down with him and, and talk and, and, and have this discussion and, and, and get this interview on tape to present to you guys. So I thank you for listening. Um, huge thanks to Seth for, uh, for being a part of the podcast and of course to Kevin and Corey over at notrevel.com highly recommend checking their site out and we will be back with more episodes more interviews more lessons more stuff more just more Um, this has been a really fun way to kick back in to to presenting the podcast it's it's more regular than it's ever been and it's really kind of fueling my thought process and fueling my learning process and i I hope it's doing a little bit of the same for you Um, please don't forget if you're listening on itunes to drop us a comment or leave us a rating it really helps spread the word of the podcast and helps get this information out there to people who might want to listen to it and learn a little bit of something from it Um, so, I'm Yannick Wistala and you have been listening to the Yannick Gustala Podcast.